Hello and welcome to this, the 42nd episode of the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. I am your host, the self-appointed cheerleader-in-chief of Irish Theatre, Ingus Ogmacanali, Artistic Director of Rise Productions, a freelance actor, more recently a director and a producer here at Rise. I'm a 15-year veteran of the Irish theatre scene and a third-generation theatre maker. And this week we are not, in fact, coming to you live from our studios at the Irish Theatre Institute in the heart of Dublin's cultural quarter of Temple Bar because I am speaking speaking to you from the home of Paul Reed here in London. And as I look out the window, I am looking at the London Eye. Um, it's incredible. Paul's right smack here in the middle of everything in uh, in Waterloo, just uh, just off kind of South Bank and everything. Because uh, I'm over here on a little flying visit to see the boys work their magic. Um, so it's a nice little exciting holiday stroke work thing for me. Um, and it's been great kind of just getting 48 hours here. And, uh, and cramming in as much theatre as is humanly possible to do in those 48 hours. So um, on Tuesday evening as I flew in, I went and caught uh, Matilda, um, the musical, the Tim Minchin thing, which was just incredible because uh, I didn't know as I was booking the tickets. Obviously, I was just going there because I was in town for the night. Um, but it turned out it was the first night for a whole new cast in there. So Tim Minchin himself was there and all just kind of sitting, you know, a row or two in front of me. Um, and a lovely buzz and a great vibe about the place that night. And... Uh, you know, as a card-carrying member of the I Hate Child Actors crew for an awful long time, I was just completely blown away by this thing. The talent among the young kids there was just staggering. Um, and a beautiful, magical night at the theatre. Very panto-esque. And as anybody who's listened to the podcast over a long enough period of time will know how much I love panto and the whole art form behind it. Um, very reminiscent of panto. An amazing night out for an awful lot of kids who were in the audience that night. But just a real magical theatrical experience good old-fashioned musical fun times and it's you know no surprise it's winning all the awards it's winning um a, a wonderful night at the theater really enjoyed myself and then uh, and then yesterday um i got to see two shows i got to cram in a, a matinee at the national um a show called last of the last of the housemans with the great julie walters and rory kinnear and uh, just you know I, I, I kind of wandered up to the national at five past two, ten past two, said, by any chance of any matinees on? They said, yeah, we've one coming in five minutes. I said, yeah, I'll do that. Um, went in and just, you know, knew nothing about the show, knew nothing about who'd be in it. And then you go, oh, oh, there's, oh, and there's, oh, okay. Um, and another lovely show, lovely great thing. And then obviously last night, you know, the whole reason why I'm, whole reason why I'm here is to, See the wonderful Paul Reed and the wonderful Rory Keenan working their magic at the Donmar Warehouse playing leading roles on the West End um, with Philadelphia Here I Come. And the guys were amazing. Um, it is a staggeringly devastating piece of theatre. It's uh, it's a play I love with all my heart. Um, and I know inside out, I mean, Jesus, I've, I've seen that many productions of it and, you know, did it as a transition year school kid. That was our big school play when we were teenagers in school. And funnily enough, at the interval of the show, Stephen Gibbons, who's a mate of mine from Port Marnock, who was in that transition year production, comes up and taps me in the shoulder and goes, Jesus, Angus, what are you doing here? I'm like, Stephen, what are you doing here? Um, so it was great, you know, so I, like, I know the play inside out. I love it to bits. And it's just such a devastating piece of theatre. I just wept like a child throughout. Um, but it just the boys are doing such an amazing job. So nice to see you know, our Irish actors over there playing lead roles in the West End. And uh, and the one thing that struck me about, you know, the whole weekend going, seeing Matilda and, you know, seeing stuff at the National or whatever else, at no point uh, over the couple of days did I go, ah, uh, yeah, it is kind of a different league over here. These people are just that step better or, or whatever. You're sitting there going, yeah, 
that's yeah that's what we do that's that we're absolutely up to that we're as good as that our best are as good as their best um and and you know there's there is no or there should be no inferiority complex about ah no but they're different over there not at all i mean they are the same as us we are the same as them we are every bit as good and look signs on it our boys are over there now running the show it's uh it's amazing I'm so proud of the lads they did such an amazing job and uh just a wonderful night at the theater for me apart from anything else and uh, a huge thank you to mr paul reed for putting me up for the couple of days um such an enjoyable trip so well worth it uh you know i'm looking forward to flying home today seeing the gang and all but uh yeah i'm so glad i made the trip really really well worthwhile so of course as usual we are bringing this to you absolutely free of charge we have promised that we will never ever charge for these interviews but as ever we are looking for you to put your hand in your pocket and put your money back into irish theater the whole ethos behind this podcast is to support promote and celebrate all that is great about irish theater and the easiest way to do that as you know at this stage, is to go and buy yourself some tickets. Whatever show is happening near you this week or this month, go and buy yourself some tickets. Go out and support it. Be out there. Engage with Irish theatre. If, by some chance, uh, theatre tickets are slightly beyond your reach this week or this month, go to one of the crowdsourcing websites uh, and see if there's a campaign being run over there by a theatre company and see can you maybe go to fund.ie. Throw someone a fiver. Donations always start at a fiver and there are always great rewards in return for those donations. And, of course, then there are many ways you can support without having to put your hand in your pocket go and tell people about this podcast whether that's in person face to face over a cup of coffee or by sharing this link as a facebook post or retweeting the link on twitter you can go and subscribe to the podcast over on itunes go back and listen to all our other episodes leave us a review on itunes or simply click on their five star rating system for us that's a one click deal very easily done you can of course as ever follow us on facebook we are facebook.com forward slash rise productions ireland or you can follow us on twitter we are at rise ireland and so that brings us to this week's guest and i am massively excited about this i have been working on this one actively since about january i think or maybe february we started a conversation about this so i'm delighted now that we finally have her and it is the amazing Anne clark uh, formerly of the gate theater and now of the all-conquering landmark productions and just in terms of setting out a roadmap for how you should aim to go about your business what an amazing example that lady is leaving people, you know, to be able to straddle such a wide range of work going from, you know, the big commercial hits in the big houses like the Russell Carroll Kelly stuff and the big Fiona Looney plays and stuff. And then going to, you know, doing something like Mr. Man with Killian Murphy or, you know, Blackbird that Catherine Walker did with her and Stephen Brennan a couple of years ago. Just amazing nights of the theatre. It's, it's a model that I am very keenly interested in. Uh, look, as usual, I'm not going to do too much talking. Let's get straight into this. Here she is, the incredible... Anne Clark. The wonderful Anne Clark. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the podcast. I'm so delighted to have you. This is what I've been plotting on for quite a while, so I'm delighted to finally have you here. Oh, well, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Let us do what we do every week then. Let's go back to the very beginning. At what stage did it occur to you that a career in the theatre might be the thing for you? Um, hmm. Well, I think a career in the theatre as opposed to a love for the theatre are two separate things. Okay. Um, because certainly... Um, when I was growing up, I mean, what I'm doing now in terms of producing sort of wasn't really on the table. You know, I didn't know about it. I didn't know it was a career option. It certainly wasn't said to me at school. Um, and when I was growing up, I sort of thought, well, I mean, I did love the theatre. And I, I remember being brought by my parents to Panto, for example. Right. And, you know, that classic um, sort of first step, first toe in the water. Like, mm. I remember when I was, I grew up in Cork. So my parents didn't have anything to do with the theatre but they you know we would have read books we would have they would have brought us to stuff 
So um, I remember they brought us to a panto in the opera house. Right. And it was wonderful and it was, you know, what you'd expect. There were, you know, sort of singing and dancing and laughing and sort of, you know, teams of people on stage. It was all wonderful. But then something happened which sort of made me sort of fall off my seat, which was there was a, a backdrop of blue sky and clouds and yeah. all of a sudden the clouds started to move <laughs> and this was like 40 more years ago now and I, I've never forgotten it it was that sheer sense of oh my gosh you know something wonderful can happen you know in this space so that was the very first sort of you know time I sort of thought this is something really special and then right through sort of growing up I would have you know I would have done speech and drama I would have um you know, as part of a, a youth theatre group, I think it was the Young Everyman, which was you know associated with the old right. Everyman. And then the next thing, actually, I remember going to um, when I was fourteen, coming up with a group of friends to see Marcel Marceau in the Olympia, and he was extraordinary. And this was, you know, like this was a, I hadn't been away on my own before. Yeah. We came up, and the show was amazing, and he was extraordinary. And again, it was that thing that you know people are doing something on stage that is so outside, you know, the normal course of things. Yeah, and. Um, but then even more than that, we came out of the Olympia and it was dark and you know, there were lights and people were having dinner after the show, you know, like at 10 o'clock at night. And this was like impossibly glamorous. <laughs> oh my God. Terribly cosmopolitan. Terribly cosmopolitan for a 14 year old from Cork. Sure. So, um, so I sort of thought, oh, well, this is absolutely what I want to do. And I want to be an actress because this is the only possible job, you know, that there is in of the theatre. So, um, so that's what I thought I was going to be. And then, so you as 14-year-old Anne Clark going, yeah, absolutely, that's me, actress. What then did you, how did you decide to go about possibly pursuing that? Or was it something that you felt, yeah, that's a career I can have? Or is it only something I can daydream about? Um, well, no, I mean, I thought, you know, I thought I would go to college and I would sort of do my sort of academic stuff and, you know, sort of spend all my time in, you know, UCC Dramat and, yeah. you know, sort of then come out and then act and that was you know, what, what I planned to do. And it all came horribly, it went horribly wrong. I went there, and I'm sure they do it, I'm sure all the dramas, you know, sort of societies do it in college nowadays when you get this huge big influx of people yes. in, in the first year. And uh, so I you know, went along to the first, you know, sort of audition for the first play they were going to do As You Like It. And I knew the play, I loved the play, I'd studied it for my junior cert, right. you know, Celia, here I come. So, um, and there was this horrible thing where you all had to audition in front of each other. Ah, so, I know, I know. Competitive auditioning. Yeah, okay. yeah. So anyway, so we did it, and I stood up and did my thing. It did really well, actually. I was really pleased. I thought, oh, this is. I have it in the back, and I sat down, and I didn't get the part. And I didn't. I thought I was outraged. Like right. I really thought it was mine. You know, yeah. and you know what were they at? And um, but I didn't like the feeling, and I never auditioned for anything ever again. Really. You know, which is a mercy. You know, the world, <laughs> well, the world has been spared. Okay well, no, no, the world has been spared my attempts at acting. But my point is, like, it is. Look, I mean, I, I, and that's what's been really interesting about the podcast is to hear sort of actors talk as well. And it's just such a hard business and such a hard process. And you know, no matter where you're at, you know, mm. there are always jobs that don't go your way, even if you are the right person for well, them. Yeah, I, that's. I mean, that's the strange thing. I mean, the the big learning curve for me is because you know, I, when I talk to actors in their early twenties, fresh out of drama school, they feel, oh, if only my agent was pushing me harder, if only this director would see me, or if only that would happen, I'd get the gig. And then you talk to someone with maybe ten years' experience, and they're going, well, if only my agent was pushing me that bit harder, or I could meet that director, or whatever, I'd get the gig. And then you talk to people with 30, 40 years' experience, and they're all saying, yeah, I just kind of really feel that I'd love to break through. It's, and you're always guessing and it's like it, 
I guess it's the nature of the business that it just kind of never leaves you. I know, I know. It's But it is really hard and I suppose people develop and you have to develop sort of coping mechanisms yeah. and strategies and all of that. And um, But yeah, no, but it's, it's not easy and I just, I, I admire actors so much, both what they sort of do in the rehearsal room and all these, this other stuff around it. Yeah. Know, before you ever get the job, after you get the job, like it is, it's really, really, really tough. Wow. So anyway, that was the end. That was the end of my acting. And so at that stage, okay, we've made a decision to possibly park acting, but... Uh, you know, we've had an awful lot of people talk about their experiences at college through, you know, players in Trinity or wherever. Um, did you stay active in the drama society there then? Well, so then when I saw, okay, so I thought I didn't like this, this feeling of yeah. auditioning and not getting a part, not for me. Wasn't going to do that again. <laughs> so, um, so then I thought, oh, well, I'll do, see what other work I can yeah. do, like, you know, my stage manage and sort of, you know, prop or whatever. So I, I did that for a couple of shows and I was the world's worst proper. <laughs> <laughs> It was terrible. And they would send me out and I'd come back like either without the right, without anything or with the wrong thing. And then if I got the right thing, it didn't go back at the end. And I know it was just, it was a disaster. So um, at the end of that, I thought, okay, that's, you know, I will go and see shows. And indeed, I went to see everything that was on right, okay. in court for the next three years. But yeah, no, I didn't actually. Um, that was the last time I got my, sort of, I sort of did hands on stuff, really. Wow. Yeah. And you say you were going to see you know, everything that was on. Are there performances or performers or shows or, you know, any memories that stand out from that time? Oh, gosh. Um, I remember I... Oh, it's terrible. I, I volunteered in, um, in The Everyman, you know, right. sort of like selling programmes and things. And so I got to see everything that The Everyman did. Okay. So it wasn't so much that there was a single particular standout performance that um, as, as sort of building up a body like a repertoire mm. you know so I got to see so many different productions yeah. of different plays and it was also the time when the um, when ITC was on the go you know right, and okay, sort of, of course, shows yeah. were coming to the opera house you know so it was actually in many ways I think um, it was it was not a bad time to be yeah. trying to, to to sort of immerse yourself in the world of, of theatre. Yeah, because I get the sense at the moment with Tom Creed taking over Midsummer and stuff and uh, and kind of new appointments down there, it feels that there is a bit of a, a resurgence of energy and you know with what uh, Pakir and Corkadora are doing with their kind of development centre down there, it feels like there's a real buzz around Cork at the moment in terms of theatre. It totally is, and actually, uh, Michael Barker Cavan, yeah, um, who I've done a lot of work with. Uh, is taking over the everyman and is is flying you yeah. know i mean it's you know they're tough times to be running theaters anywhere but yeah. like you're absolutely right and i think and mary hickson in the opera house is again like such a breath of fresh air she's just you know got an amazing sort of can-do attitude <laughs> and you know and is just lovely with it and you know and and i think so they're all talking to each other about yeah. collaborating and it is there there absolutely is a, a whole new spirit and the cork midsummer festival i don't know if you managed to get down this year but it was there was such a buzz yeah about cork and i went down for a day and a half and i saw seven shows <laughs> and michael um had directed um uh pagliacci at the everyman which sold out they turned away a thousand people in cork like it's extraordinary that's insane. It is extraordinary and it would really give you like tremendous hope for the future because, I mean, obviously there is the, I don't know whether it's a deserved reputation, but there is a kind of a feeling that, you know, for, for touring stuff coming, that Cork Theatre people will support local stuff, but that for stuff travelling in, maybe that the support isn't always as strong. I mean, I don't know how truthful any of that is, but lovely to see that it is getting, that getting bums on seats, getting people out there and, and just seeing the work. Yeah, totally. And like the sound of the Cork Opera House has just done the sound of music, yeah. I think, again, for weeks and, ran for weeks and weeks and yeah. again, sold out and... Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, it's not, theatre isn't dead yet. It's a promising thing. Yeah. So, okay, having stepped away then, from, we're taking off a checklist here, stepped away from acting, stepped away from stage <laughs> management, 
When then did the bug say, come back and bite you again and say, no, look, I'm not letting you off that easy. When, when, is this, when did that spark happen then? Well, okay, so I finished, so I did, I studied, I did an arts degree. I did Euro, European studies, which was um, the first year it had been offered in Cork. So right. there wasn't really a roadmap for what happened after it. And I'd sort of thought vaguely I would go and do an internship in Brussels and then that didn't happen. And then I thought, oh, what am I going to do, you know? And this was, um, this was the early 80s, you know, so times were hard. Yes. Like they were hard then, and you know, I mean, I know they're hard now, but they're, like, at least now we have sort of, you know, a certain amount of infrastructure, yeah. which we didn't have then, you know, so it was really tough. And I was left with this um, sort of arts degree, which, you know, and what was I going to do? <laughs> so I did what will sound impossibly archaic now, but anyway, I came to Dublin and I did a secretarial course. Excellent. And um, I, it was like eight weeks in the Irish Times training and they did, like it, it does sound barking, like we did it on sort of manual typewriters and you know, we learned a sort of form of shorthand and how to lay out a letter and you know, I, mean, I don't know, I think people, you know, it's very hard to imagine time. Positively Dickensian. It is completely, completely, completely. Um, but I, and maybe this actually harks back to the sort of, you know, the feeling, you know, actually when I didn't get that audition, I thought, oh, no. I don't you know, I remember walking out at the end of the eight weeks and thinking, I have some marketable skills that I can, you know, I will never, you know, sort of, I will never not be able to get some sort of a job. Yes. Um, and that, so I do think there's a thing about it sort of wanting to be in control of your own destiny a bit, which is again, sort of goes back to that thing, which I think is really hard in terms of an yeah. actor trying to manage their career, you know, and I think it is easier now than it was, but even so, you yeah. know, it's, 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 it can be tricky enough. So I did that and I came out, um, yeah, uh, and then I saw um, an ad for a job in the Dublin Theatre Festival for an administrative assistant, and I absolutely, like, I couldn't believe that a job like that existed. But yeah. this was like absolutely, I mean, it was my dream job. I had come, when I finished my final exams, I had come to Dublin for two weeks for the Dublin Theatre Festival as a treat to myself. And right. I just went and saw loads and loads and loads of shows, and that was my post studies. Sort of holiday so and I so I was smitten already and you know and so I applied and I got the job and um, I worked with Michael Colgan was the director at the time right. and Grace Parrott and Lizzie it was a very small team uh, and worked uh, for a year on the 1983 Dublin Theatre Festival and, and like you say dream job territory it must have been an amazing experience it's gonna get thrown in at the deep end small team just right in there at the, at the face of it. It was absolutely fantastic. I was pinching myself. I literally was. I was skipping into work. Like, I was, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, you were dealing with amazing companies, companies you've heard of, mm. legendary companies, international companies. You know, then you're ringing them up and they're, you know, talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and yes, because it's a small team, you know, you are absolutely involved. And, and so, no, it was a, a fantastic experience. And, yeah. Um, uh, I loved every minute of it, and I wouldn't have left except that in the following year the festival didn't happen. Right. It was one of the two years the the festival didn't take place, uh, and um, Michael Colgan at that stage had gone to the gate in December of '83, and I sort of stayed on for I don't know six months and was mm. sort of trying to tie things up, and um, and then the following summer I went to the gate. So what was that experience like? Because I mean. For many people now, they only know the gate under Michael stewardship. So this is right in at the very beginning of that. What kind of a situation was that? What was the gate that you guys had inherited? What was the gate that you were trying to build? I mean, I it must have been an amazing experience. 
Um, yeah, I mean, again, it was a very, it was a very small team, and mm-hmm. um, it still is a very small team. I mean, that's one of the joys of working in the gate, I think, in that, um, you know, you feel very connected. You know, there aren't sort of huge, big departments. Yeah. Within, you know, so um, it had. I mean, Michael was. Michael was very young when he, like, I'm trying to think, he must have been sort of in his early 30s when he took over the gate. Um, Mary Rooney was there, who um, had worked with Hilton and Michael, so um, she was sort of like a connection with them. But apart from that, yeah, no, it was, um, again, a sort of sense that sort of lots of things are possible and sort of, you know, Michael, he did things like he sort of, you know, sort of... In, in terms of sort of production standards and sort of all of a sudden sort of you know put a great focus on design and yes. you know so the gate would have been known for for sort of you know wonderful design and actually I remember the very first production when I joined the first production was a woman of no importance strangely uh, enough <laughs> strangely <laughs> enough yeah directed by Patrick Mason with a wonderful design by Joe Vanyak and uh, again it was sort of like uh, sort of a saying this is the sort of work we want to do this yeah. is the standard we want to do and and uh, and it was the start of like a really 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 successful reign I suppose you know and I mean it's it's a beautiful theatre it's a wonderful place to work you know the level of you know sort of work that's been sustained over the years is extraordinary you know yeah. I mean Michael like it, it looks easy but it's not <laughs> <laughs> and you know he's always sort of pushing and always you know sort of wanting to to you know to work with great people and you know, so, you know, you get things like, you know, I had this, you know, sitting there at my desk one day, you know, sort of getting a phone call saying, you know, hello, can I speak to Anne Clark, please? And I said, who's this? Harold Pinter. And it was like, you know, it doesn't get much better than that, you know? Man, so, names to conjure with. Yeah. Did you guys feel starting off on, on that adventure, I guess with none of you knowing that you'd be there for as long as you ultimately would be there, did you feel a weight of history on your shoulders did you feel an obligation to what had gone before with with Hilton and uh, and, and Michael as well um uh, I'm sure I'm sure Michael did right and I know Mary did um I, I hadn't known the gate under Hilton and yeah. Michael um, because I'd come to Dublin um later than that um but it does it is an extraordinary uh, you know whatever what is it now 70. 80 years in existence, you yeah. know, and, 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 you know, to have sort of, you know, the towering people like yeah. Martin and Michael <laughs> and Michael Coggan, yeah. you know, and sort of Longford's in between. But, you know, it was like, it is, they've been great protectors of, yeah. of the theatre's reputation and advancers of it. And it is, you know, it's really interesting to see, you know, the gate toured a lot under Michael's regime sort of in the last couple of years and um but you know Hilton and Michael toured before them you know and sort of you know at a time when it was much harder and much you know when you weren't you didn't have you know sort of email you didn't have you know so um you know so it already had a fantastic international reputation well I mean as you look back on your time at the gate what are the standout moments for you are the things that you're particularly proud of achievements or the things that you never thought you'd be able to pull off and did or or things that you never even thought you'd even like to try and pull off and ultimately did um well gosh um i mean i suppose the festivals you know like the beckett festival the very first you know and there have been sort of several iterations of that and like now, the festivals. Question. how did the gate theater manage to turn 
Beckett into kind of a box office draw because by <laughs> rights that should be the least commercial thing in the world it should be difficult and challenging people should go oh no I don't get it or it's too boring and I'll never buy into it but there's some magical pixie dust has been sprinkled on it from, from the gate theatre that's turned it into almost uh, like a commercial success every time they roll it out it's bizarre well, it's true. You know, I was just in Edinburgh last week and um, Barry McGovern was performing what? Yes. In the Lyceum, which is, I don't know, a 700-seat theatre and, <laughs> you know, and sold out, you know. <laughs> so it continues. <laughs> um, I don't know. Michael had always sort of said that he wanted to sort of reclaim Beckett from sort of poor productions. Poor okay. as in the sense of not um, having a lot of resources. You know, because, you know, if you have a play that, you know, in which the setting is a country road, a tree and that's it. It's easy to do that with no sure. money. So that people did it, you know, for, you know, sort of, you know, when they didn't have a lot of money, when they were starting out, you know, and he absolutely felt that there was, you know, um, it was, it, like, I think he's just genuinely a huge fan. Yeah. You know, I mean, and of all the work and of the prose and of the poetry as well. So, um, uh, uh, and he had a hunch, and you know, he's, this whole thing about sort of making, sort of eventing theatre, yeah. you know, is, is, like it's just it's a it's a it's a way into people. It's a way of sort of saying to people, you know, come try something. You know, the the you know the sum may be even greater than its parts. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's the same like Druid have just done. I don't know, Druid, not just with Druid Murphy, but Druid Singh. Yeah. You know, and it's you know for an audience member, it's 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 a privilege to be able to come and see a range of work, an arc of work, maybe with all the other things that you can sort of program around it in terms of talks or whatever readings and yeah. you know. that thing always fascinates me the idea of like you say eventing so that making it an event that it seems that he has all, Michael has almost a singular talent for to be able to do that as, as a theatre producer and, and to make things you know compellingly relevant to go oh that's the thing I have to go and see the way that certain Broadway or West End shows you're going to go oh that's, that's a must see whereas I, I is there any explanation behind how you do that that the rest of us can go and rip off and make people come and see our shows <laughs> I don't think there is. I think there. Um, hmm. I think. Well, actually, I think it's what festivals do, isn't right. it? You know, and I think. Um, so I think people, you know, so when the Dublin Theatre Festival, which is coming up, for example, will take a chance and will go and see sort of a range of work they mightn't otherwise go to see yeah. because you know, and they'll go and see six shows in two weeks as mm. opposed to one show in two months. Yeah. You know, because it's you know. So I think I think making it easy for people to understand and to grasp is important. I think, you know, if it's an event, then, you know, you always want the thing you can't have as well. You know, if you think it's, in, it's, it's, it's everybody's going to be talking about it, everybody's going to be, you won't get a ticket, you need yeah. to move now. You know, I mean, that's, you know, it's always, you know, it's human nature. You know, you go on to book tickets and you see, oh, this performance is selling fast. Oh, I better go do it now. Yeah. You know, so, um, I mean, I think the thing that Michael, the, the sort of stroke of genius on the Beckett Festival, actually the first Beckett Festival, was doing all 19 Beckett plays. Yeah. You know, not, not, not you know, the six big ones or, you yes. know, just the best known ones, but every single one. <laughs> and so, you know, like, when are you going to get a chance to see 19 Beckett plays? Again, you never are together. Actually. Were, so were you guys told at the time that it was the craziest thing you could do and it'll never yeah. work? Yeah. <laughs> really? Well, yes, I think we all knew it was pretty crazy. Also, because <laughs> it's the gate. And I mean, the gate is the most beautiful theatre in the world. Yeah. But in terms of sort of physical sort of flexibility and resources, you know, there isn't flying, mm. there isn't, you know, wing space, you know, so that was a challenge, as the Americans <laughs> say. <laughs> a solution opportunity. Is yeah, that a, no problems, yeah, just solution exactly. opportunities. Exactly. And, and, and it was amazing. It was an extraordinary thing. And then it went on and, yeah. you know, and it was done elsewhere. And, 
you know, and again, you know, you're talking about people and an audience, Rebecca, I remember we did it in the Lincoln Centre Festival in New York, and there were people, there were queues around, you know, the, the, the blocks with people, there were, you know, people with cards saying, you know, any spare tickets, really? yeah, kids on rollerblades, like in New York in the heat in July, in sort of 100 degrees, it was, um, it was extraordinary. That is remarkable. Mm, mm. It's an amazing thing. I, I mean, so then, look, let's talk about the decision to walk away from the gate then. I mean, what was there? Was it a particular ambition that was driving that? Was it time done that you'd felt that that was a chapter that you had closed? What was that moment like for you? Um, well, I mean, I'd been at the gate a long time. Yeah. You know, I was there for over 18 years, nearly 19 years. And, and I loved it and I loved, you know, I loved working with Michael, I loved working with the people there, you know, I'm still very friendly with them all, you know, the quality of the work is extraordinary, you yeah. know, in terms of working with people at the top of their game. But I was, you know, I'd hit a big birthday and I sort of thought, <laughs> if I don't do it now, I never will, you know, right. because it's, you know, it's, a, you know, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot to be said for staying. Um, and there was just a bit of me that, you know, in spite of all the responsibility, you know, at this stage, you know, as deputy director and, and taking on sort of great responsibility for sort of all sorts of, you know, sort of areas. But, you know, I wasn't the boss. And Michael, at the end of the day, you know, decided what, you know, like, yeah. you know he, he was running the theatre. Yes, of you course. Know. And I just sort of wanted to see if I could do it. Right, OK. And a challenge to yourself. Yeah. So I left. Now, it took, like, because I didn't have a job to go to. Yeah. Um, like I sort of, sort of talked to Michael about it and said I want to do this and try this um, and it was actually it was a year later by the time I left I mean I you know I stayed on and I you know sort of I decided to take the plunge and I decided to set up Landmark um, and so Landmark was founded in 2003 so sort of slightly staggering that next year is going to be its 10th anniversary wow. and I absolutely never saw that coming I mean I I you know didn't set out to sort of form a company that would, you know, sort of yeah. still be, you know, on the landscape and producing very happily. Uh, but here I am. Was it, am I right in thinking that it instantly you guys were very prolific, that, that, that it kicked off, at, at, that turned out quite a bit of work in quite a short space of time? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I set up the company in 20, uh, 2003, and then the first production was Skylight, the David yes. play, with Owen Rowe and Cathy Belton. Uh, in, um, Whatever happened to either of those? Oh no, so there you go. <laughs> Directed by Michael Barker, Caven and designed by Joe Vanyak and lit by the wonderful Rupert Murray. But anyway, uh, so yeah, so that was in 2004. And then no, for the first um, couple of years, I sort of did a show a year. I was also doing, because I was doing other stuff as well, I was doing sort of management, sort of consultancy work. Right. So for example, I did some casting for the Abbey and sure. sort of did the Plan the Stars that went, for example, to, yes, to London. I, so I, I did three shows for them and then I, I toured, I actually toured for the Abbey and the Gate. It was around the whole time of the, the centenary or whatever it was. Um, so, so I did a lot of sort of management work as well. And in fact, that's how Landmark was set up. It was set up to do both production, producing and general management work. Yeah. Uh, and just as it's gone on, the, the producing has taken over and over. And so, I mean, the thing for, for me always with Rise is that, uh, yes, I'm kind of the face of Rise in that, you know, I had to put myself into fight because like, I couldn't ask anybody else to work for nothing. So I have to go and be in it. And obviously with me presenting the podcast and stuff, which a lot of people would have their first contact with Rise production. So it, it feels, people kind of presume it's a one-band band with me, whereas, you know, I, I have Brian Ballarty, my, my partner in crime here, you know, running the show behind the scenes. For you... Anne Clark is very much the face of it, but do you take? I mean, do you take it all on your own shoulders? Do you have a team around yourself to to help with all that? 
Well, I mean, when I set up Landmark, I was sort of very consciously sort of doing it on a, you know, trying to keep it small, you know, mm. and sort of, you know, not having great big offices, you know, and having overheads that you needed to then pay for and try and, you know, sort of, of manufacture work to pay for. So, so Landmark began and still runs out of our spare room at home. <laughs> <laughs> How very glamorous again. <laughs> it is. There was, um, oh, I was doing work with an American producer at one stage and he kept, every time he came to Dublin, he kept wanting to meet in my offices. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, we meet in the Westbury. <laughs> I think eventually he, he got them done. But anyway, so yeah, so, so yeah, so no, it's, it's very, very small. But having said that, you know, I mean, I have been, I've been really lucky to work with really great people, you know, and sort of people like somebody like Rachel Murray, for example, you know, who's done a lot of work with Landmark, who's now producing the Corn Exchange show right. in the festival and, and sort of several shows in Fringe, it seems. Um, and Sarah Cregan, who is working with Landmark at the moment, as company manager, who's absolutely brilliant. Um, and is keeping me on the straight and narrow. <laughs> and who knows to laugh when I say everything is do I do is planned. She's <laughs> she's beginning to see how it all works. But um, I suppose the, the sort of the person that I really couldn't do it without is Jonathan White, who is my husband, who's an actor, who sort of never signed up really for this. You right. know, like I think you know I had a very sort of you know good job at the gate and very sort of secure job and. Uh, you know, but 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 has ne- like has always been incredibly supportive, and like going back to when I thought I would leave the gate, and, mm. and right through, you know, and it is a mad thing to do to try and sort of, you know, produce shows and try and make a living from producing yeah. shows, and you know the risk is the risk is phenomenal, yeah. you know, and and because he's you know my partner in life, <laughs> you know, yes. like it's it affects him, you know, so yeah. the decisions we make affect him too, so, but you know he. He's been, and I never made a joke about him, you know, being sort of, you know, doing all the other stuff that he does, like being the IT department, being this and everything, but he does actually do all that. But he's, like, he's so much more than that as well, and he does, like, he's just, he's a, he's a great sounding board apart from anything else, you know, and you need that, you know, you just need to be able to say, oh, you know, stop for a second, is this a good plan, and his, his judgment is fantastic, and his support is fantastic, and I sort of know that it's always coming from the place that he's in my corner, and he's, you know, he's rooting me and he's rooting for the company and um, I couldn't do it without him. Well it certainly helps that he's one of the nicest guys in the business too it has to be said. Oh. <laughs> well I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean you know you talk about you know your early experiences thinking about be- becoming an actress and, and the way you talk about actors now and you know as signs on it the shows that you do with Landmark always have absolutely the best in the business. I, I get the sense that you have a real love for actors too. Um, oh well, I just—I mean, I just—I uh, think they're—I think they're extraordinary, you know. And I think the—I um, also have a love for theatre, and I have a love, particularly for actors who embrace the theatre. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> and um, you know, I've been lucky enough to work with a lot of like really phenomenal actors over the over the, the past few years. And you know, part of it has also been a function of sort of the amount of money I've had available. You know, I haven't been able to do sort of massive productions you know so quite often the shows have been sort of quite small scale and you know so which means that you know the actor sort of at the center of it really yeah. and uh, you know and, and Michael Barker Caven and Joe Vanyak who did a lot of the early work you know was a really happy collaboration with them yeah. and um, you know it, it, it just it, 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 it was very fulfilling and you you know you see like we did Skylight and it was a bit of a white knuckle ride actually because 
I didn't get funding for it at the last minute. I mean, I had no reason to expect that I would get funding for it. But anyway, I didn't. And so it was it was all a bit hairy. But anyway, thankfully, it went on and it was a massive, massive success. And that gave me the sort of the belief that I could actually, you know, do it again. And so then the following year, I did the Gold, the Edward Albee play, which again was sort of quite challenging in project. And um, I think sort of like it was the day after the open that opening night, I actually felt really proud because I sort of knew I'd done it twice now. So it wasn't entirely a flash in the pan. Yes. You know, and it is, you know, like everybody sort of you know wonders you know you know because to a certain extent like there was no producer school i didn't go to producer yeah. school so to a certain extent you're making it up as you go along you know so to um yeah to 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 know that you know sort of i could you know conceivably think of doing it again was great that was a good moment can i talk to you then about kind of the much fabled landmark production model of kind of a twin stream of stuff where we get the, the big shows in the big houses like the Fiona Looney plays or the Russell Carroll Kelly plays and then something like um, you know Blackbird in, in, in Project it, presumably that is a conscious decision to have both strands kind of juggling those balls in the air at the same time well it's a necessity apart from anything else you know I mean fewer and fewer companies are funded now to produce you know to work year round so um, if you're producing sort of small scale art led work in a 200 seat theatre you know you need to have something else you know whether it's management work or consultancy or whatever or whether it's producing on a large scale but I actually also wanted to produce on a large scale Mm -hmm. you know there's there's you know to produce a play in the Olympia or the Gaiety and have you know 1200 people in the Olympia sort of all having a good time is a pretty fantastic feeling yeah you know and it also I don't know it sort of keeps you it just keeps you sort of you're grounded in a way you know um in that because otherwise it's really easy to sort of get sucked into thinking the only way of making work is to apply to the arts council for money and you know sort of then put it on for a limited run and then you know then try to you know tour it maybe afterwards but you know and and there are actually other ways of making work and getting work on and i think that's um i mean that's the challenge like, that's the challenge of a producer mm. and um you know and touch wood you know the sort of you know the the sort of the plays I've done I've done three plays by Fiona Looney now in the Olympian the Gaiety and two um of Paul Howard's Russell Carroll Kelly which yeah. have been great fun and they've you know it's been wonderful to work with them and it's also been wonderful to work with um like it's also great to see actors for example well not just actors creative and production people as well sort of you know getting paid you know uh, reasonably well yeah you know as opposed to you know constantly when you're you know in a small theater trying to you know trying to count the pennies yeah you know so um so no and i think you know and it's you know you, you see people like i don't know philip o'sullivan who's in the goat who plays you yes know, of course the father in the rosa carl kelly or susan fitzgerald equally you know it's just it's great that there is sort of great crossover so i'd like to ho- hopefully i'd like to keep that going is my plan now i think I think because you're as good as you are at what you do, there's almost a perception out there that, oh, well, all you have to do is put on a big Russell Carroll Kelly play, you'll make 8.7 million in your first week and it'll be grand. <laughs> or equally, because Landmark now has the reputation that it has, all you have to do is, on the back of an envelope off to the Arts Council, we need 450 grand for this show and it'll all be grand. I, I'm guessing it's not that easy. <laughs> oh, God. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. Um, yeah. No, there are. Not, it's never easy, and um, sort of producing is is tough enough as well, you know. And there are sort of like, you know, whether you're doing a large scale or a small scale show, you know, there'll be times at four o'clock in the morning when you're there thinking, 
you know, how am I going to make this work? Yeah. You know, it is, it's, it can be very, very, very nerve wracking. Um, I mean, in terms of, you know, and so much of it is, is instinct, you know, what will work. Um, uh, like in terms of the big houses. Um, but it's, yeah, no, it's a risk. Like it is, and it's sort of a mad risk to take. Yes. You know, it is, it really is. And you sort of think, like I suppose financially, sort of that whole sort of risk reward ratio isn't great here. Do you know? Because yeah. you know, if you're in London or if you're in New York, you know, you've a show which you know sort of takes off. You know, it can run for years. You know, and then that's that's great. Whereas here, you know, you're, you do four weeks, one and a half weeks in the Olympia, and because that's it's, it. a, it's a finite resource of, it of is, theater of doors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you know, sort of the, the the potential reward for your risk is sort of barking. But you know, at the same time, you know, it's you know, so far so good. You know, we're we're still you know, I've, I mean, I've done whatever five shows, five big shows, yeah. and about yeah, uh, several other. Oh, I did three co-productions as well with the Helix a long time ago, which was the first right. sort of little foray into co-producing with when Una Carmody was running the Helix. We did these kids shows, right. or family shows rather, at Christmas time, which was great. So I suppose yeah. So there are just like just different models, and then I think what's interesting now is that there's sort of all sort of hybrids coming on screen because yeah. of the change in in funding and because of you know the arts council is now very keen to promote partnerships yes. and you know which is uh, which is a fantastic development and you know it's been it's been brilliant for landmark and you know i've ended up you know sort of having the opportunity to co-produce things you know with the dublin theater festival for example like testament last year with yes. you know gary hines and marie mullen and colin tobin you know again whatever like, happened to any of them yeah <laughs> you know sort of again slightly pinching yourself um, you know, uh, or indeed the co-production on Mister Man, you know, with with uh, Paul Fahey and Galway Arts Festival, which was a which was a wonderful thing. So um, so yeah, so you know, you you just have to try, and you know, then there are all sorts of other, you know, sort of streams of funding, or you know, and I think we need to start looking a bit outside the country as yeah. well, which is something I'm trying to do for next year, and you know. Um, How different are the challenges? In terms of, is your job ultimately the same either way, whether it is for a small two hander? you know, upstairs in project versus, you know, one of the, the, the bigger ones in the gate of the Olympia. Are they the same challenges or is there a different approach going, I, I need to be doing certain things for this to be appealing to the Arts Council versus I need to be doing this certain things to make this appealing to, you know, 1,200 people every night over a four-week run? Um, gosh, um, well, I mean, I think obviously different shows. I suppose it starts, I suppose it starts with the play as opposed to, you know, like I don't sort of wake up in the morning and say, oh, this is going to be a commercial producing day. Yes, you know, and okay. I'm going to sort of put on a different, you know, hat or, you know, so um, I suppose like it starts, it does start with the play, you know. So, for example, I, you know, did a small play a few years ago called Underneath the Lentil, which was a one-man show with Philip O'Sullivan, which we did in Project Cube, which was very successful and then toured actually around Ireland and went to, to Edinburgh as well. Um, and did particularly uh, well over there as well. Uh, well, it, 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 yeah, no, it was great. It was great. It was a great experience. Um, so, but like that's never going into the Olympia, you know. Yes. So I get the play, and I'm looking at it and thinking, where's the best place to try and do this? And then, you know, if I want to do it in here, what's the best way to sort of source money for that? Mm. You know, so that's one way of going about it. Whereas, you know, sort of the the like the Russell Carroll Kelly plays, you know, for example, you know, I'm not doing a project, and you know, equally, you know, I'm not doing dandelions with you know Pauline McLean and Deirdre yeah. Kane and Keith Duffy yeah. you know sort of in the cube yes. so um, but I mean in terms of the actual nuts and bolts you know I mean yes obviously you know there's a whole sort of swathe of stuff that comes in terms of raising money commercially you know for the bigger shows you know so that's you know and I have, have to say I have some 
amazing sort of investors who have come from the very beginning, right. sort of who sort of held faith, um, you know, sort of with those various outings. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's a whole sort of sway the work. But apart from that, like the nuts and bolts of it are very much the same, you mm. know. Yeah, I mean, the shows still have to be rehearsed. They still have to be designed. <laughs> they still have to be brought in on budget. You know, they still have to be marketed, um, you know. So you've, you've mentioned the big recent ones. We'll have to talk about it. Uh, did you have a feeling in your guts from early on that Mr. Man was going to be the success it was? Or has it even surpassed expectations? Ah, uh, well, I mean, Mr. Man, uh, Mr. Man is an amazing thing, you know. So it, it came about actually, so that was absolutely not my having this great idea. Oh, Ender Watt has written this great play, you know, wouldn't, let's see, who could we get for it? Oh, I'm sort of hitting <laughs> on Killian Murphy, that's now what happened. <laughs> so um, we had been talking about sort of Killian doing. Um, of some theatre work because he'd been doing all this film work and um, he uh, and he and Enda were friends you know, from way back and uh, I think Enda had sort of sort of almost put the play to one side but Killian said let's have a look at this and so you know and yeah and then they decided you know that actually this would be a good thing to do and um, so yeah I mean we didn't it's actually it's interesting because we were supposed to do it three years ago, as opposed to, I mean, obviously it came to pass last year, but initially we were going to do two year, three years before, um, and it was all set up actually, we were supposed to be doing it in Galway at the Arts Festival, and then in the project, and then going to the Traverse, and lovely sort of thing set up, right. and uh, um, it was quite late in the day, and um, I remember getting a phone call from Richard Cook, Yes, who indeed. you know, um, who, uh, and I'll never forget, you know the way sort of people say things to you, it sort of sears itself into your brain, you just know this, he said, um, you, you, you don't know what's just happened. I thought, oh, what's wrong? And he said, Killian had just had a phone call personally from Christopher Nolan, who yes. wanted him to be in Inception. And I sort of thought, oh yeah, but he wants to do the play. <laughs> Yes, indeed. I'll park Inception for the yeah, moment and yeah, I'll go, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, okay. So needless to say, he was doing Inception, so um, so that was fine. And uh, But then it came back around again two years later, and the whole point, I suppose, that, like, I think nothing is ever wasted. And I think, you know, if you have, you can have conversations with people and, you know, they may not lead a project, may not come to pass, but something will come out of it three or four years down the road, you know, and I think if um, there is no question that Mr. Man was, like, quantifiably better last year than it right. would have been two years ago because okay. we would have been rushing we were sort of you know already you know and it, people had a time to plan we had time to you know sort of get an amazing creative team Jamie Farthing did this stunning stunning set uh, you know so and and um, and then and then we had like it was wonderful in Galway I don't know if you saw it but it was amazing and then we had this sort of like just phenomenal year where we did that in Galway in July um, and then we did, um, uh, we brought it to New York to St. Anne's Warehouse uh, with Culture Island help. Yeah, it was the end of, you know, the whole Imagine Island yes. thing. So we literally got there and wouldn't have happened without it. So it was fantastic. And, and played in St. Anne's and then played in the spring 30 performances in the Littleton, you know, which is a 900 seat theatre. And this yeah. one man sold out amazing reviews. It was, you know, it was like a source of great pride. It's uh, it's an amazing thing. I mean, just the the scale of the ambition of that kind of thing is what amazes me, and the idea that because presumably the logistics of having a New York run set up and a London run set up, and I mean the the logistics of that must be tricky to put together. Um, I think there was a lot of buzz about the production from right. early on. 
so I think that helped. And so, for example, Susan Feldman in St. Anne's Warehouse, who you know sort of had presented the Druid productions of of Enda's work, um, had sort of been you know calling me hourly. It felt like, and I, kept, <laughs> <laughs> and I kept saying, no, no, we can't even even begin to think about it until we get it open in Galway. So I think she was. Uh, Sticking, had a doll that she was sticking into pins into at some right, stage, okay. but anyway, but it all came, it all came good. And then Pori Cusack, um, uh, who's associate producer with the National, had come to see it in Galway, and um, uh, yeah, and he made it happen in in the National, and it, it it was it was a wonderful thing. So yeah, so Paul and I were were thrilled and very very proud and yeah, very. It's, uh, it's remarkable, and I'm I'm delighted it got the success it got, and also I have to say I was delighted. Uh, for Killian win the award here, I thought because I think there might like there might have been a feeling that because he's off doing big Hollywood stuff, he doesn't need an Irish Times Award kind of thing or whatever. But no, I think you recognise a performance for the performance, and and it was lovely that you know where other people have gone off and done the Hollywood thing that he has come back relatively consistently to do theatre here. Yeah, and it's true. It's true. I think there are actors and they just go and then they don't ever come back. I think he'll never lose. I mean, it was an astonishing performance, mm. and you know. What it took out of him physically, as well as you know, just every every other way, like it was a, a phenomenal commitment, you know. And he actually, you know, for a movie star, which he is, yeah. he like he committed a year of his life to it, you know. He really did between yeah. the you know time of sort of starting work in it to rehearsal to doing it in Galway to you know doing it in New York to doing it in London. It's an entire year out of his life. Yeah. So, but he's like yeah. So in terms of the award, I was absolutely thrilled and 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 you know. Of course, I'm biased, but, <laughs> but it was an amazing performance, and uh, and he was really pleased. Well, I've told you, what did I say? I, I told you earlier on that I I've seen a huge amount of landmark work over the years, and one of the ones that still stands out for me was that production of Black Berlin Project, which was just astonishing with with Catherine and with and with Stephen Brennan. And I'm delighted to see that you should be working with Ms. Walker again very soon. Yes. Tell us a bit about this forthcoming project, because I saw. And in development showing of it at the festival last year, which blew me away. Oh, uh, so tell us about Talk of the Town. Well, we're hoping it will be. The, talk of the, town. <laughs> <laughs> um, the press release just writes itself, I like it. Um, so yeah, no, this is a project that came about because Annabelle, um, uh, this came about from Annabelle actually, because she had been fascinated with Maeve Brennan. And she had brought that idea to um, the Dublin Theatre Festival to Lachlan Deegan when he was still there. And Lachlan thought that was a, a great idea. And uh, then I came on board and I had been working with them on Testament last year anyway. So then we decided to do it together. So it's a three-way co-production with, between Annabelle's company, which is Hatch and Landmark and the Dublin Theatre Festival. And um, we thought, who is the best person to write this piece about this extraordinary yeah. you know Irish woman who emigrated to Australia with her very famous family and ended up working in the New Yorker in the 1950s you yeah. know amongst all these sort of you know men and uh, and writing sort of absolutely stunning work that is almost forgotten or had been forgotten back here and we thought Emma Donoghue and I think it was just um like a timing is everything in this world and I think you know Room had just been such a massive worldwide success yeah, like sold oh, I don't know how many millions of copies and been nominated for the book and everything and I think we probably got to Emma in sort of like the two weeks you know between you know yes. the end of that and you know the next the next thing um, but she 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 was intrigued and she said you know she, she talked to Annabelle and then Annabelle went and sort of worked with her for a couple of days mm. and um, yeah and then she she sort of got 
became fascinated by Maeve Brennan, as indeed everybody who sort of comes within her orbit does, I think. So, um, so yeah, so then she worked with Annabelle and we, we've been working on it for about a year and a half, which is, again, like a really unusual, yeah. rare sort of luxury to have, I suppose, in this day and age. Uh, you know, we did the in development last year, which went very well. Um, and now we've just started rehearsal for, for the play proper. Um, and it will be going on in the project for uh, two and a half weeks. Excellent. Opens on the 1st of October. We have a fantastic cast. So Catherine, obviously, is born to play Mary Brennan. Yes, absolutely. And uh, so we've Catherine, we've Lorton Cranich, uh, we've Owen MacDonald, who's back wow. on stage in Dublin. We have Dara Kelly, Michelle Forbes, Barry Barnes. It's not a bad little cast you've it's, put together. Yeah, yeah, no, we're pretty, yeah, yeah, I mean, we're pretty happy. And they've just come to the end of the first week in the rehearsal hall and uh, everybody seems very, very happy and, oh, wow. yeah, it's exciting. I mean, is there any thought in your head that this is the story of an iconic Irish woman being directed by, you know, a fast becoming an iconic Irish director, female director, being written by a fast becoming iconic Irish female writer, being produced by a fast becoming iconic female Irish producer. Do you, is there, I mean, do you ever think of yourself as a female producer versus the, just a theatre producer? Is that ever even on the radar or is it, is um, it anything that's important to you? I can, well... I can honestly say I hadn't thought about the talk of the town that had never blipped on my radar. The fact right. that, that these are all women that absolutely hadn't. <laughs> so that's, uh, well, that's just the way of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but just in terms of being a, a, a female producer, um, when I left the gate and I decided to strike out on my own, I, um, I talked to people, you know, and I think people, I mean, that is one of the things I love about the business, that, you know, people are genuinely very open and, you know, if you ask somebody for help or advice, you know, you generally, they're, they're happy to give it. Yeah. So I remember when I left the gate, um, I was thinking of leaving the gate, I sort of thought I'd go and speak to various people. And, you know, so I spoke to people like, for example, Pat Moylan, for example, who was really generous, um, sort of several other people. Uh, and one person I just spoke to was Moya Doherty. And um, she, I, she wrote me, this was a, just a wonderful letter, um, and very supportive, and she finished, and again, I remembered the phrase, you know, she finished with saying, delighted to be able to support a fellow female producer. And I just thought that was such a vote of confidence for somebody, you know, who had, you know, sort of produced, you know, at the top a of her global game, globally, phenomenal. global dominance. Yeah, um, and it was just very generous. And, and it also helped me to start thinking of myself in that way, you know, because I think a lot of producing is, is about confidence as well, and it's about sort of saying, you know what, I can go and make that happen. And um, so, yeah, so that was a great boost at the start of my producing career. Unfulfilled ambitions, plans for the future, anything you can reveal to us at this stage, or are there things, mountains that you still like to tackle? My one man Hamlet, for instance, but that's fine, we can talk about that after we finish, it's grand, it's grand, don't worry about it. Uh, no, but are, are there still things that you'd like to go and do? Um, Oh yeah, I mean there are. Um, I mean there's sort of there, well there are various projects that I want to work on and people that I want to work with, which sort of you know I'm sort of inching towards at the moment, right, okay. which I can't you know. But you know there are like sort of interesting things coming down the tracks. There are, um, I suppose, if, you know, like it is the whole sort of inter Mr. Man has been fantastic in terms of opening doors internationally. Right. Okay. So hopefully there will be, you know, sort of more opportunities to, to do that. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, I suppose what I really want to do is just sort of stay 
stay in Dublin, you have no desire to move, yeah. you know, um, you know, continue producing here, continue working with the best people, continuing to try and make it, you know, make the best, the best shows I can. Um, I, I don't know, they, they, I've never sort of like been sort of ambitious for sort of Anne Clark sort of personally, okay. but I have like in terms of landmark, I have, do you know? Mm. And I, I remember, you know the way when you sort of set up a little Twitter account or something, yes. you have to sort of put in a little verb, and I remember about a year and a half ago, I finally said, oh God, I have to do the Twitter, I have to figure <laughs> out how to do it, and I still struggle with it, but anyway, um, and you know, you have to put a little bio, and I sort of wrote, you know, Landmark is one of Ireland's leading theatre producers, and I thought, oh, I can't write that, <laughs> and I took it out, and I took it out, no, no, and then I thought, you know what, I have to get over myself, and I have to, you know, if I say it, it might be true, yeah. you know, and so I suppose I just want to try and make sure that is true and try and keep making sure that I try to make it so. Well, I think you're doing a pretty good job at it so oh, far. Um, I, as I said, look, I'm a massive fan. I've seen a huge amount of what you've done with Landmark. I can't wait to go and see Talk of the Town because I know it's going to be spectacular. And uh, I just wish it continued success going into the future. Thank you so much for coming down to the chat today. That was amazing. Thanks, Angus. <laughs> So there you have it, the incredible Anne Clark, such a wonderful lady and such an inspiration. If you didn't learn something from that one, I don't think there's any help for you. Uh, she's just amazing. I'm so delighted I finally got the chance to sit down with her and, and have that chat. I think that's uh, absolutely essential that we had her voice here as part of this ongoing conversation and dialogue here on the podcast. I'm absolutely delighted we got the chance to do that. So look, as usual, that brings us to our usual weekly roundup of what is going on around Dublin and around the country. WAG is back at Theatre Upstairs at Lanigan's. Um, um, by popular demand, the Viking Theatre has Tuesdays with Mori, which has been going incredibly well for them there, and that will be followed in there by Oleana, the David Mamet play. Um, Project has much ado about nothing with the great Terry Orr, who of course worked on Tear Down the Walls with us here at Rise Productions for the uh, the Dublin Theatre Festival last year, uh, our little show we put together after Fight Night. Because hey, why do one show on the festival when you can do two? Um, the Gate has a woman of no importance. Beauty's Cafe Theatre still has Village Wooing, which is going very well for them. Um, Smock Alley has Ram. Man in with their production of True West which uh, I only hear spectacularly good things about uh, and of course they also have the Hunt for Red Willie in there from that new company Exit Excitedly. Uh, the new theatre has Velvet Revolution and the Abbey Theatre of course has the great John O'Casey play The Plough and the Stars. As we look around the country then heading south down to Cork, Gorilla Days in Ireland is still at the Everyman and as ever there's a bucket of stuff going on at Cork Arts Theatre. Check them out at corkartstheatre.com The Town Hall in Galway has the May by the brilliant Marina Carr one of my all-time favourite writers. Uh, that's from Mephisto Theatre Company. Go and check that out. And our good friends down in Kilkenny, Devious Theatre Company, have Phantasm on at Clears Theatre in Kilkenny, which I'm hoping to get down to this weekend, uh, if I can just swing it. Uh, I've, only, I've heard great things about it, and we've kind of chased each other around the country on tour for the last couple of weeks, uh, but I just haven't had a chance to catch it, so hopefully this weekend will be the weekend I do it. So look, that is us. That is episode 42 in the books. This machine keeps on ticking over. We will, of course, be back next week for another chat with one of Ireland's leading theatre makers. This has been the Rise Productions Irish Theatre Podcast. For Angus Og McAnally, I'm Angus Og McAnally. We'll see you next week. Bye.